Lord, we come to you now and we thank you for our time tonight. I thank you that we get to study Leviticus. Um, I don't know if I thought I'd ever say those words, but I, I'm very thankful for the time uh, in store tonight. I pray that you would guide it according to your will. Lord, as we start a, a new pace in our study, I pray that you would uh, allow us not to rush things. Um, and while we know we can't cover everything, uh, my prayer, Lord, is that you would allow us to not miss what you, what you want us to see. And so as we study at a different pace than we have previously on Wednesday nights, um, my prayer is real simply that you would keep us in step with the Holy Spirit. Um, as we prepare these um, teaching times, keep us in step with the Spirit. As we deliver during these times, keep us in step with the Spirit. In our conversation tonight uh, with one another, uh, keep us in step with the Holy Spirit. Uh, God, we are thankful that you are a holy God and that you call us to be holy and to live distinct lives because of that. Uh, we love you very much, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Leviticus. When you get there, go and blow all the dust out of it. Turn to Leviticus. Now, um, I mentioned a new approach to our Wednesday night studies. Probably everyone's aware. I just want to take a second to <laughs> to explain um, uh, what it's going to look like now. Previously, um, okay, I came here in 2003, and since then on Wednesday nights, I've taught through uh, Romans, Genesis, and Exodus. And so that's almost 10 years, so we're looking at like roughly three or four years per book. Um, now we're going to do Leviticus this week and next week, and then the following week will be in Numbers. So um, significantly different pace. But the reason we're doing that is this. Um, ben preaches slower than anyone on planet Earth, and so that's part of the reason. Um, he, he, he preaches in, in a, in, he calls it low crawling in a manner where we go so slow and it's really, really good because we don't miss details and we get to see things in the word that we would otherwise not, not see. So that's one part of it. The other part of it is that as we were looking at sort of the big picture of what do we hope for if someone joins Crosspoint and they're here, what do we hope for that they would understand in the canon of, as far as our studies go? And we've looked at Wednesday, not using Wednesday nights for... Uh, just kind of keep doing what we're doing. We've looked at doing topical studies, uh, you know, a prayer study, a fasting study, whatever. Um, but we, we thought, as, as we prayed about it as a staff and as, as elders, deacons, we, we looked at it and said, you know, let's, let's look at trying to cover larger portions of Scripture in more of a survey-type study. So what that means is I'm not going to read all of Leviticus to you tonight and then spend three seconds teaching. Um, we're going to, um, I'm going to encourage you all to read as we go. Uh, because we're moving at a faster pace. It's a survey study. We're not going to be low crawling, but we're going to have like sort of a 30,000 foot view of the, of the word. And the schedule, if we can keep it, means that every four years, we will go through the entire canon of scripture on Wednesday nights. So probably after the first four, we might be done with Hebrews, but we will have gone on Wednesday nights through the whole canon of scripture. So it's a good balance because we're, we're, we can take as much time as we need on Sunday mornings to really low crawl and dig into the text, but then on Wednesday nights, we kind of get a, a bigger picture. So, um, uh, a bigger picture of the entire word. Now, um, this is also the first time that Crosspoint adults, youth, and children will all be studying the same things on Wednesday nights. The reason that's exciting is I'm hoping that that's going to facilitate more conversation in your homes, where... Um, you can go in with your kids and say, we studied Leviticus, you studied Leviticus, what would y'all learn about? And, and y'all can have more conversations there and make connections to the Sunday morning teaching. Um, also, um, we are, um, we're just excited about just taking in more of the word. And the challenge that it's going to be for y'all is I want to encourage y'all to read your Bibles just a lot. Um, you already are reading through Hebrews as we're going through Hebrews. Been said on Sunday, read Second uh, Chronicles six and seven. So we're encouraging y'all to read through that. I'm encouraging you if, you, if you can find the time over the next couple weeks, read through Leviticus. It takes three hours if you read it out loud slowly. If you're a fast reader, you could probably knock two hours off that. But it's well worth the time uh, as far as we go. The other thing I want y'all to know is you don't have to read through the entire thing to be a part of this study. Because if you're sitting there thinking, all right, well, this will be my last time on Wednesday nights. I'm not going to do that. Um, you don't have to read through all of Leviticus to be part of Leviticus study or all the numbers to be part of number study and so on. We're going to teach it in a way to where um, we're going to take a big bird's eye view and then each week we're going to have a scripture memory verse. That's right. The adults are going to have scripture memory verses every week 
And that verse, what we're hoping to do is because of the way we're teaching, we're wanting to build on um, a knowledge of the Scripture to where we can go back. You know, okay, Genesis was a book of beginnings. Uh, Exodus was a book of uh, being freed um, and being brought out of Egypt. And then Leviticus was what? And I'm hoping that y'all, by the time we're done, will say Leviticus 19.2, our God's holy, we're called to be holy. And so that's our memory verse. So turn to Leviticus. Um, the book itself is mainly made up of the instruction that God gave to Moses when the people of Israel were, were encamped at the base of Mount Sinai. Um, oh, that's no problem. I think you said sorry before it rang. Like, that was amazing. It was so fast. <laughs> well, you can, you can tell them they disturbed you, um, but not us. We're fine. Um, uh, this, God gave a message to, to Moses and, and to Israel, obviously, through Moses, when the people of Israel were encamped at the base of Mount Sinai. So they received the Ten Commandments, and then they spent about a year at the base of Mount Sinai. And that's what Leviticus is. So big picture, Leviticus is what they heard from God while they were at the base of Mount Sinai after they got the Ten Commandments, okay? So that's what we're going to be looking at for the next two weeks. What did God say? Um, the chapters break down, and we're going to look at that. But before we look at the chapter breakdown, I do want you to turn to Leviticus 19, verse 2. And it's not even the whole verse. It's just the second half of the verse that I'm wanting you all to memorize and help your kids to memorize because that's another thing we're doing. We're, we're we're coordinating this through our classes so that everyone will look back and say, what's Leviticus about? And particularly here, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. So let's read that out loud together, because that is going to be our place that we always go back to when we think back to our Leviticus study. So here we go. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. That's our verse that we're going to use to remember what is Leviticus about. Now, as we study, we're going to look down into one particular area of Leviticus to understand what that means. When, when God says, you're to be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy, what are the implications there? What, what are we talking about when he says holy? Does he have any specifics in mind? So, big picture, chapters 1 through 7 describe the various kinds of sacrifices that people must make. Has anyone ever read through Leviticus? Okay. For those of you who have read through Leviticus, what are, just throw out some words of what sticks out when you read through Leviticus. Laws. Detailed laws. Absolutely. What else? Instructions. What else? Capital punishment. Yes. Nothing shows you that a holy life is more important than a long life than capital punishment. Uh, we'll get to that next week. Uh, what else? A bunch of sacrifices, which means what? A bunch of what? Sin and a bunch of repentance and a bunch of forgiveness and a bunch of dead animals and a bunch of blood, a bunch of offering. Yeah, th there's... Um, I was overwhelmed. I just kept thinking, blood. blood. I, I have a, uh, a little, I have a journaling Bible that has these big margins so I can take a few more notes since we're going through the whole canon of Scripture in the study. And um, I just kept writing, blood, blood, more blood, a little more blood. The life of the flesh is in the blood. The blood must be atoning. And just over and over and over and over and over and over again, that's something that sticks out. So what I want us to know is that chapters 1 through 7 describe various kinds of sacrifices that people make. We mentioned sacrifices um, are stick out. So there's a bunch of different sacrifices. They're not all the exact same that people will make. And those seven chapters describe that. Chapters 8 through 10 focus on the preparation of Moses' brother Aaron as the high priest. So those three chapters, it's looking at Aaron and what it takes to prepare him to be the high priest. And it looks at some of the details of the Levitical priesthood. Um, chapters 11 through 15 outline the purity laws. Chapter 16 is on the Day of Atonement, and it sort of links the purity laws to the next section, which is chapter 17 through 27, and they enumerate various laws, lots of laws about holiness. Holiness is a key theme in Leviticus. So as I share those chapter breakdowns with you, just in looking at the chapter breakdowns, what can we glean about what is communicated in the book of Leviticus? We already said some of it. Well, what can we glean just in those chapter breakdowns? What, what's communicated in the book of Leviticus? Holiness. 
Holiness and God. And what else? Need for a redeemer, need for purity, the need for distinctness. So these are all things that if we go to 2 Timothy 3.16, anytime we study scripture, we're gonna go to 2 Timothy 3.16 because it says all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for reproof, correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. If we don't get this, we're to some degree incompetent and unequipped. So when I see this, I say, okay, what is God in his breathed out word wanting to say through Leviticus? And he's wanting to talk a lot about being distinct and being holy and being pure because he is holy. Those are things that are important to God. When you're studying the word, and especially at this pace that we're going to be going at, you may not get all the details of exactly what this particular kind of sacrifice is and how it was administered. But one of the details you need to look at is what's important to God here? And what has he chosen to communicate over and over? So we look at repeated things because God doesn't repeat himself in, in vain. And so, mm-hmm. yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't just a rectangle with sheets. It was like very, very specific to the cubit. Um, so the main points communicated are this. First, we're going to look at the priests must be distinct. And we're going to look at their distinction in terms of their duties, their provisions, and their judgments. They have particular duties that they have to do. They have provisions that are given to them. And they're judged in a particular way, and that makes them distinct. The second thing we're going to look at is the whole people must be distinct, not just the Levitical priesthood. All of Israel must be distinct. We're going to look at that in terms of cleanness, the ritual purity, and holiness. So to consider these points this week, we're going to look more closely at the story of Nadab and Abihu. So turn to Leviticus 10. This is a story that it's, it's heartbreaking for sure, but it helps us to understand what it means when, when we see this book and we see God over and over again communicating it. It's important for us to be holy, important for us to be distinct, and really important for us to listen to what he tells us to do and how he tells us to live. Because Nadab and Abihu made a mistake in that. So I'm going to read Leviticus 10, verses 1 through 7, and then go ahead and put your finger in Leviticus 16, and I'm going to read the first three verses of that when I finish these uh, seven verses. Leviticus 10, 1 through 7. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. Does anyone else's version of the Bible say something other than unauthorized fire? Okay, we're all using the ESV. Fantastic. Strange? Yeah, we'll go with strange. Strange, unauthorized fire. Um, so, um, before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. Now, that one verse is huge. Nadab and Abihu have gone before the Lord, and they have offered something to God. They're offering it to him. Dear God, we bring you this. We offer it up to you, but it's not what God commanded. It's called unauthorized and strange. In verse 2, it says, And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Okay, quite the turn of events. Is anyone encouraged by Leviticus yet? They brought strange fire, unauthorized, something that God didn't command. And because of the strange fire, they died by fire. God consumed them with fire from himself, and they died on the spot in front of everybody watching. Now, why would such a stark, abrupt thing happen? I mean, that's an abrupt end to the life of someone who had a really important role, right? That's a really abrupt end. So look, look at verse 3. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people I'll be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Now how is Aaron related to Nadab and Abihu? Say that again? Yeah. I mean, imagine, I mean, really climb into the context. Imagine this scenario. It says, he held his peace after he heard the word from the Lord. And Moses called Mishael and Elzapan, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, come near, carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary and out of the camp. So they came near and Moses, uh, and they came near and carried them in their coats out of the camp, as Moses had said. And Moses said to Aaron and Eleazar 
and Ithamar his sons, do not let the hair of your heads hang loose, do not tear your clothes, lest you die, and wrath come upon all the congregation, but let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled. Now this is a serious moment, a very, very serious moment. Their loved ones just died because they offered something that the Lord had not commanded to be offered. So, look at verse chapter 16. One through three. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place. And then he goes into with a bull from the herd for a sin offering, a ram for the burnt offering. He goes into the details. But God goes to him and says, I want to make it very clear how you are to approach me. And it's a sobering thing. Um, it gets your attention. It's sad because we, we see death here because um, the wages of sin is death. And so um, this is a very serious point. In these verses, what is revealed to us about God? He means what he says. He absolutely means what he says. What else? Yeah. Yeah, you approach him with a holy attitude, which isn't what? What would be the opposite of that? Proud, flippant, what'd y'all say? Casual, yeah. Entitled. Yeah, I mean... Those words get close to home. Approaching God in an entitled manner, I mean, we just finished a season that our whole families can become very entitled if we're not very, very careful. And so God is showing that, that he's to be approached the way that he says. And this is very sobering, very, very humbling, uh, and almost um, fear-inducing. I would say not almost, definitely fear-inducing, but we want to make sure we get the right kind of fear. So this reveals particulars about God. What does it reveal about mankind? Yeah, we want to do our own thing when it comes to God. That, that's, that's how we roll when we're trying to be just independent from God. We want to do our own thing when it comes to God. Um, so at the heart of God's people, I want us to see that God places a whole tribe of priests known as the Levites. So we have Israel. They've been led out of Egypt, delivered in an amazing way. We saw the plagues. We saw the Red Sea. We saw provision of manna. Um, we saw uh, miracles from the hands of God uh, through his leadership. He established them. He strengthened them. He kept them. They crossed the Red Sea, and not one of them died, but not one Egyptian lived that, that pursued them. I mean, th these very, very significant things where God protected them and saw them through, and he's brought them out. So we have Israel, and then we have within Israel this priesthood known as the Levites, the Levitical priesthood. Now, um, the Levites are called to be distinct. What does it mean to be distinct? Set apart, okay? Um, three ways that we're going to consider how they're to be distinct. One was their special duties, then their special provisions, their special judgments. So first, uh, their duties. From, ex from our Exodus study, what have we learned are some of the duties of the priests? <laughs> Hold on. Are y'all giggling because I said duties? I thought I dismissed the kids earlier, but I, I guess. I mean, and it's not just y'all. Like, I saw multiple people giggling at duties. All right. That, that's, yeah, I saw the, <laughs> you said duties. Um, uh, so from our Exodus study, what have we learned of the duties of the priests? Yeah, they, they, they offer up the sacrifices for who? Who? The people and themselves. That's a really important point. Um, Hebrews goes into that, that for the people and themselves. Okay. Uh, what else? What else do they do? Yeah, they represent the people to God and God to the people. Yeah. Anything else? Cool. We'll go with that and we'll come back to some other things. Turn to um, Leviticus 10. 
we just read the part about Nadab, Nadab and Abihu, and now look at uh, verses 10 through 11. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean, and you're to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. So, what does this say is another duty of the priests? <laughs> Distinguishing between what's holy and what's not holy. What's another way of saying that? Would it be what? Serving? Discerning? Okay. So what are they doing when they go and sit with people and they help them to distinguish between what's, what's holy and what's not holy? Absolutely. And what's the simple way of saying that? Counseling or teaching? Yeah, they're teachers. They're, they, they provide counsel. They provide insight. They want, they want people to see um, where they are and where they need to be and what's good and what's not good. And, and all of that is d- defined by God. So they got to know what God says and then they got to go. It'd be like um, if I come to teach this study, if I didn't read anything about what God said in Leviticus and I just took what I knew about Leviticus from what other people maybe had said, some of my own thoughts about the word Leviticus, and just came in here, that would be ridiculous. You have to, you have to go and look at what God says, and then that's, that's what you communicate. And so, um, they were teachers. They, they taught. Um, it's interesting. Um, one of the, if y'all want to dig into these studies in a more in-depth manner, week to week, one of the uh, resources I'm use, using is Mark Dever's Old Testament survey. It's so good. The guy is absolutely brilliant. And uh, one of the observations that he has is that Devers observes, Dever observes that while the minority was likely at the tabernacle performing the sacrifices, the majority must have been involved in teaching the citizens of Israel. So that's interesting because I think as we went through the Exodus study, in my mind, I had more of a picture of they're all at the tabernacle doing the sacrifice thing. But the reality is um, there were a lot of Israelites, a lot of them. And so it's, it's, it's more likely that the majority of them were actually teaching the people um, and, and the, the smaller amount were, were at the uh, tabernacle doing the sacrifices. So um, the priests are distinct by receiving and performing the sacrifices as well as the large responsibility of teaching the people. Um, another thing that came out in the studies this week is that um, I, didn't, I didn't read this in Exodus, but in background notes, I, I found this in Leviticus study, is that when the worshiper would bring their sacrifice, the worshiper would slit the throat of the animal, and then it would be given to the priest to perform the duties. So that's a little bit more of an intimate, um, detailed, hands-on approach. It wasn't just, hey, here's my goat. Don't leave me out. All right, I'm gone. It was together. They go, they put their hands on on the animal and, and, and kill it, and then the priest does what the priest is called to do. So in addition to... Um, their special duties, thank goodness we get to move from that. The priests were also distinct by their special provisions. Uh, does anyone know how the priests were provided for? They ate the sacrifice. Yeah, a lot of the sacrifice was eaten by the worshiper and the priest. It's, it's quite interesting. And so, uh, why do y'all think that is? Yeah. And, and why do you think God would provide for them in such a manner? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, their role was distinct, just as Israel was distinct as a people. And so, um, you're exactly right. Uh, God, in his wisdom, has chosen to provide for the Levite priesthood through sacrifices. Every other citizen of every other tribe would labor for their own food. They would keep flocks, they would work the land, but the Levites would labor in teaching God's word and maintaining the sacrifices of the tabernacle. And so the sacrifices are how they were provided for. Um, The final way that we're going to consider that the priesthood was distinct is in their special judgments. And this brings us back to Nadab and Abihu. Why did Nadab and Abihu die? They disobeyed God. How did they disobey God? Yes, they did not follow what he had taught them. They took their own approach. So, on what terms are we allowed to approach the Lord? His. Short answer, sweet, we all, his. We don't want to say anything else. 
Then will fire come down and consume us? His. His way. That's how we're allowed to approach the Lord. My question is, what are his terms for us today? Through Christ alone. Yep. You repent. It's through Christ alone. What are some other details about the way that God has commanded us to approach him today? Yeah. Broken, contrite heart. How else? As his child, we approach him as our father, our heavenly father. What else? Say that again. Boldly. Wait, man, this is getting a little more complicated. Boldly. Why would we be able to approach him boldly? Why would he say that? Because of the work of Christ. The work of Christ is really, really important to Christians. It seems silly to have to say that. But the work of Christ is really, really important to Christians. It's not just about getting our stuff in order where we feel like, well, I'm not as bad as someone else, or, or I, I pray as much as I think I need to. Or it, The work of Christ is hugely significant. That's the only way that we can approach him boldly. What else? What are some other details about how God allows us and commands us to approach him? Yeah? Pray without ceasing at all times. Yeah? It's a continual relationship. It's a dwelling more than it is a visitation. What else? Yeah? We don't have compartments where we say, uh, this is mine, this is God's, this is mine, this is God's. Nothing's off limits. What else? Say that again. Yeah, we don't make a spectacle of our prayers. Look at me, world, I'm praying, dear Lord. Yeah, we don't like make a big deal in our prayers. We pray with sincerity. Uh, we, we pray to the Lord. Um, you said with thanksgiving and joy and praise. Yeah, that's a big one. Um, a lot of times if we may be more conditioned to go to God when things are, are really difficult, and that may be a time when we're more or less compelled to, to hit our knees than when things are going great. And it's interesting because when things are going difficult, sometimes thankfulness is something we can lose sight of. I, I told you all a while back that I misquoted that Philippians verse a handful of times publicly. Um, um, do not be anxious about anything but at everything. By prayer and supplication, let your request be made known to the Lord. Do not be anxious about anything, but let your request be made with thanksgiving is what it says. And I left out the thanksgiving part like multiple times in a public setting. We approach him with thanksgiving. There's never a time where it's appropriate for you as a worshiper not to be thankful. So, if we lose sight of God, if we're unthankful, we can say, well, that's because I've lost sight of what he's actually doing. And um, that's very real for people. I mean, anxiety is what the verse is about, um, which is a form of pride, which is what the verse is about. Things like um, depression can jump into that. I, I can lose sight of what God's doing and I, and, and I become less thankful. And I'm not less thankful because I have less to be thankful for. It's because I've lost sight of what he's actually doing. So he says, you approach me with thanksgiving in every circumstance. Learn how to be brought high and learn how to be brought low. Know the secret of both those things. So those are his terms for us today. Um, what are some ways that our culture tends to approach God in their own terms? And it may be ways that we have wrongly approached God in our own terms. Santa Claus, sure. I tell you what I want, you give it to me in a neat way. Yeah, I've been a good boy, and, uh, and you're going to reward me. There's entitlement there. There's flippant. I mean, think about what it's like when a kid sits in Santa's lap at the mall. Um, uh, a lot of those kids are pretty entitled. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I taught a sixth grade camp one time. They didn't invite me back, in case y'all were wondering. And uh, I asked them, I said, I said, what do y'all deserve? I just want to know what y'all deserve. Not, not what you want, but as children of God, a camp of believers, I've got a little a pad of paper here with a marker. I just want to write out what you, what you feel like you deserve. I spent the next 20 minutes making the most exhaustive list of junk and I kept stopping. I was like, now hold on. You, you just said a, a gerbil and a new bike and a gaming system. And I mean, they got, they really went over the top. And I kept stopping and saying, not, not what you want, but what you think you deserve as children of God. And uh, 
they kept going, and they just kept going, and they kept going. And I mean, I turned the page, and they kept going, right? And all these toys and junk and, and trips, like these sixth graders were talking about like these exotic trips, like go, we want to go to the beach in Mexico. It's like, beach in Mexico, that's weird. <laughs> kept going and going and going, and finally I was like, okay, so this is what y'all think you deserve. Okay, and then to the sixth graders, um, this was years ago when I was, I was probably a little hard. But I said, okay, each of you deserve God's wrath. The wrath of God is towards unrighteousness because it suppresses the truth. You don't deserve any of that. You deserve the wrath of God. We'll talk more about it tomorrow. And I prayed, and we ended it. And uh, um, the next morning, we started, and there was a little kid on the front, and um, the kid leaned over to his friend and said, I had nightmares last night. Did you have nightmares last night? So... <laughs> I didn't get invited back, uh, but they know what God's wrath is, and that's good, um, because I also, I also told them what grace was and forgiveness in Christ, but I wanted to make it very clear, they didn't deserve all of that junk, um, entitled, my goodness. So yeah, our culture tends to approach God in their own terms of entitlement. What, what else? Yeah, yeah. Sure, sure, during the holidays. What are some other ways that we, we can approach God in, in, in a, a manner that's probably not conducive? Bartering, yeah. Yeah, my grandmother, um, she lost a bag of jewelry. Why an 80-year-old woman's carrying around a bag of jewelry? I have no clue. But it was a very expensive bag of jewelry. She lost it. And she told God, I will quit smoking if, if you give me my jewelry bag. And she told the whole family, I want you all to know, I made a deal with God. It's like, yeah, nanny, can we talk about that? That's not, um, you don't get to do that. Um, and she's, she's been smoking since she was like 14, and she's like 83, okay? So she actually doesn't breathe normal air. She breathes smoke. And, um, and so um, she made this deal with God. Well, of course, my mom and my aunt say, oh, we're going to find that jewelry. And so they go over uh, to her house, look through everything, and it was like on a hanger inside of a shirt, inside of a shirt, inside of a bag or something bizarre. Um, and said, we found, uh, you, you made a deal with God, right? And she said, yeah, yeah, I did. I said, I'd quit smoking, um, but that jewelry is nowhere to be found. And they were like, bam! And, and she has not had a cigarette since then. Uh, while I'm glad she stopped smoking, you don't make deals with God like that. That's not Okay. Um, we used it as a family to our benefit and hers, but we also used it as a teaching point of saying, maybe you're not supposed to do that. that, that is, that's flippant, and, 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 uh, and we don't approach God like that. He doesn't make deals like that. It's grace that you have your health after smoking for three-fourths of a century, and it's grace that you have your jewelry that would have been a large loss. So, um, yeah, we make deals with God. You do this, I'll do this. You do this, I'll do this. Um, I found with, uh, I've got uh, four young kids I found um, with young kids, we uh, feel like we do that more. Um, I do, anyway. I, I, I would lean in that direction more, especially in the middle of the night. God, if you just, if you make them go back to sleep, I'll love you more than I have ever loved you. Um, yeah, if, if they quit waking up, that'd be great. Um, we have a tendency towards, uh, towards making bartering deals with God. Totally inappropriate, not right. What else? Yeah, yeah, I'm going to put God in this box of the way I see him. And we even say things like, well, that's fine for you, and, but this is how I am. And maybe that's what God seems like to you, but this is how God seems like to me. That's not how God works. He doesn't say, okay, world, y'all just figure out what version of me you like and worship that. That's not how it works. So the message of the gospel, the connection here is that the message of the gospel is that in ourselves, we do not have what we need to find peace with God. And Nadab and Abihu did not end their lives at peace with the Lord. They ended their lives receiving the wrath of God because it was towards their unrighteousness because their unrighteousness was suppressing what God had commanded of his people. We don't have within us what we need to have peace with God. We cannot earn the forgiveness that's required for a reconciled relationship with God. We look outside of ourselves to Christ and we look to God for the ways that he allows us to be his children. What that means is that we're not allowed to simply call ourselves Christians and act as we wish. We prove that we're Christians by acting the way he wishes. So I'm hoping that's convicting for everybody. I mean, I'm sitting here teaching this and thinking, Lord, please don't consume me with fire. I mean, I, I have stepped out of line so many times. 
I've called myself a Christian and I have, I've operated on my own terms and been flipping about it. And it's arrogant and it's sinful. And if, if not for Christ, I'd die in that sin, an eternal death. So we don't have what we need to, to have peace with God and to make peace with God. Worshiping the one true God is a very serious thing. That's one of the big points in Leviticus. Worshiping the one true God is a very serious thing. He wants everyone to know all the other gods you ever worship, this is completely different. This is nothing like worshiping those gods and the carvings and, and the nature gods. This is nothing like that. He wants us to see worshiping him is completely different. And it's a serious thing. And the priests were dealing with serious matters so they would be seriously judged. That's one of the ways that they were distinct. Turn to 1 Peter 2.9. Got about 10 minutes left. And in those 10 minutes, we're going to look at the call for the nation to be holy, not just the priesthood. 1 Peter 2.9. Sorry for the sniffling. First Peter 2.9 says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Now, according to these verses, now the, the question is specific, according to, to this verse, what does it mean to be a royal priesthood for us today? It means we are what? There's a few words in that verse that describe what we are. Chosen. What else? Yeah? Holy. What else? Special. Out of darkness. Possession. What else? Proclaiming. Exactly. That's what it means to be his children. That's what it means to be a priesthood for us today. A royal priesthood, a nation of priests, a holy nation. We are chosen, we're holy, uh, we're his possession, um, we're called out of darkness, and we're, we're proclaiming people. We proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness. So, it's not only the priesthood who was and is called to be distinct, but also the citizens of Israel. So we're going to consider the distinctness in two ways. First, cleanness and ritual purity, and second, holiness. Over half of the occurrences of the word unclean in the Bible are found in Leviticus. What can we conclude from this? It's not a trick question, like at all. Over half of the occurrences of the word unclean are found in the book of Leviticus. What can we conclude from that? Yes, yes. This is our Captain Obvious moment of the night. Yeah, there is a difference between clean and unclean. Okay, what else can we conclude? It's important to God, especially in what he communicates in Leviticus. What else can we conclude? Say that again? Yeah, and, and it can happen in a lot of ways. We can become unclean in a lot of ways. Now, one really huge encouragement in the book of Leviticus. I think it's probably one of the, my most favorite things that I've engaged in Leviticus is this. Uncleanness is generally not an irredeemable state. For a room full of sinners, I hope that encourages you. Uncleanness is not an irredeemable state. Why is that good news? Again, not a trick question. We're unclean. Unclean. We are unclean. We need something outside of ourselves so that we can be redeemed from the unclean state. And in Leviticus, over and over again, one of the beautiful things we see is that uncleanness is not an irredeemable state. The unclean can somehow be made clean. Now, um, again, Dever uses an example of a circle, and it's really good. He says, all things inside the circle are clean. Imagine a circle. If I had a wet board, I would draw a circle. Can we all envision a circle? Fantastic. And everything in the circle is clean. Unclean things are outside of the circle. So unclean things can be made clean through a process, through certain actions. The many different forms of immorality could make one unclean. So there's, think about an arrow going two ways. You've got this big circle, clean things on the inside, unclean on the out. 
Something that's unclean can be made clean through certain actions, and something that's clean can be made unclean through immorality, sin. Now, you could become unclean by taking part in unavoidable things, even permissible things. I've always thought this was weird in years. I remember as a kid reading through Leviticus being like, that's not fair. When people die, you've got to bury them, and then you're unclean. That's not fair. I don't get that. And as a child, I would read through Leviticus, not a lot. I don't want y'all to picture me as like a child that often read Leviticus. Um, but I would see things like that, and I'd just be like, isn't that up? That's not fair. You can't help that. People can't get past that. Of course you're going to be unclean. And they, they, that's not even their fault. That's the point. <laughs> it's not the point that it's not your fault. It's the point of the many ways we can become unclean. What I mean is this. You could become unclean by taking part in unavoidable things as well as even permissible things. In Leviticus, miscarriage, infectious skin disease, preparing the corpse of a loved one who had passed. God's not saying, don't bury him. No, in fact, it was part of their their life to to be um, respectful in the way that they celebrated the life of the deceased. That's why we have funerals in large part the way we do. We're following the lead of our ancestors. Preparing the corpse of a loved one who had passed. Menstruation, childbirth, and even intercourse. Some of these things are unavoidable, obviously. Some of them are privileges and blessings. But all of them could make a person unclean. So, so we've got this circle, right? Clean, unclean. In addition to clean and unclean, Leviticus makes a distinction between holy and common. So think of the circle and think things in the circle are common, but think of a smaller circle within common called holy. Big circle, common, clean, unclean, uncommon, and then in the small, in the small circle within the big circle, you got holy, okay? Just think of a bullseye, okay? Now, I want us to see that you could push a clean thing into that smaller circle called holy through the process of what's known as sanctification. Sanctifying it, making it holy. What does it mean to be sanctified for us today? If you're being sanctified, you're being made what? More what? More like Christ. So something that's clean and common but not not holy can be made holy through a process called sanctification. So you've got, you can get, more this way through sanctification. But something holy, clean, can be made unclean through another process. What would, be, what would the opposite be called if we're moving out of the circle rather than in? What's the opposite of sanctification being made more Christ-like? If I took a holy thing, and what would I have to do to that to, to, to make it not holy? Separation from God. Your, your marriage as a Christian is Holy. How would that be made unholy? Defiled, profaning is the opposite of sanctifying. So if you profane something, it moves the other way. But if it's sanctified, it moves inward towards holy. Y'all see what's going on here? So, so this is really encouraging for Christians, really encouraging. Why? The opposite would be to put the holy thing out of the smaller circle. This is profaning it, making it common or even unclean. So a theme in Leviticus is that unclean common things could never come in contact with holy things. That's one of the themes that God establishes. Unclean common things don't come in contact with holy things. You keep them separate. So this is when we see, in fact, some of the most grave consequences, i.e. Nadab and Abihu. Grave consequences when you do that. We're going to talk more about our sin and what it means to be a people who are called to be holy, called to be distinct, but are still sinners next week. So, what do these distinctions show? And this is what we'll close with. Why does it work this way, and what does it reveal to God's people? First, it shows us that God is indifferent about nothing. Your God is indifferent about absolutely nothing. There is no part of your God that is wishy-washy. He's very particular, and he's very distinct, and he's very loving, and he makes it so that unclean things don't have to stay in an unclean state. So our God wants us to know all those things about him through what he has shown us in Leviticus. So God wanted the Israelites to know that all of life involved making distinctions, and they should never assume that something is morally neutral. 
That's why we're called today, as Romans 12 says, to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. It's a very real transformation, a very real renewal that God expects of his people, not to be conformed to the world, but to be transformed. The second thing that we see here, why the distinctions, why does it work this way, what is God revealing to his people, is it shows us that God cares tremendously about how he is worshiped, and he refused to allow his people to worship him in the way surrounding nations worshiped their false gods. There was to be no confusion there. He's distinct. He is holy. He calls his children to reflect his character. So God's concern for holiness becomes even more evident in that last half of Leviticus. Remember 17 through 27, roughly half the book, enumerate the many different laws about holiness. God's people are called to exercise genuine, I'm going to summarize chapter 7. <coughs> Sorry. I'm going to sum, summarize chapter 17 through 27 like this. God's people are called to exercise genuine and transparent concern for honest weights, fairness. God's people are called to be fair people. God's people are called to exercise genuine and transparent concern for the poor, for the blind, for the deaf for the elderly, and even fairness in the law, especially toward foreigners. That's what God calls them to in those 10 chapters in Leviticus, very specifically. And what I want us to see there is that we're to be a people who promote justice. And justice is blind to wealth, position, and status. That's one of the things he's, he's showing them. Justice is blind to wealth. Justice is blind to position. Justice is blind to status. Justice is doing what God says because he says. Now, Leviticus also contains Jesus's most mentioned verses. Anyone know what that is? He mentions it on the Sermon on the Mount. Most mentioned verse that Jesus has shared. Love your... There you go. <coughs> love, <coughs> love your neighbor as yourself. That's from Leviticus 19.18. Jesus is quoting Leviticus when he says that. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's something that God establishes with his people very early on in their life. It's not now that Jesus came, now you need to be loving. No, you were always to be loving. You were always to care about justice. You were always to care about the afflicted. You were always to care about those who are on the receiving end of injustice. That's, that's one of the characteristics of God's people because that's one of the characteristics of God. The command to love our neighbors demonstrates this really important point that's found in Leviticus. And, and this is our, one of our closing points here. Holiness involves not only refraining from committing sins, but holiness involves taking care not to omit obedience. That's what that shows us when God says, care for the blind and the, and the deaf and the poor and those who are on the receiving end of injustice. If you see someone being unfair to someone, you should care about that. That means that being a child of God means doing what God values, not just thinking how God thinks. I think particularly Reformed people we can have a tendency toward looking at deeply theological doctrinal issues, and as long as we're thinking about things rightly, we can feel pretty good about ourselves, and it's not enough. Holiness, the holiness that God calls us to is not just to think how he thinks, but to act how he acts, to, to take an actual interest in others. Philippians says, do not look only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Very real interests we're to look at because we reflect the character of God and we do, in doing so. Concluding, Psalm 19. I've been reading Psalm 19 uh, for the last few weeks. God just kind of had me there. I don't always know why he has me where he has me in scripture, but this was neat because when I went to Leviticus to prepare these um, studies, uh, over and over again, joy in the law is communicated by the psalmist. And Psalm 19, 18 says, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things from your law. Wondrous things. So can we still do that today? That's my question. After Jesus, fulfillment of the law. Can we have our eyes open to wondrous things of the law? Is that something we should still long for with the psalmist? Can I go to Psalm 19 and say, God, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things from the law? Is that still true for us today? And, and the answer is absolutely. Now, why? For the psalmist, the law was a very real source of direction, encouragement, strength, steadfastness, and joy. Because it's what God wanted. And if I'm going to live the life I'm called to live, I'm going to do what God wants the law. So there was real joy there. It wasn't just this burdensome like, oh, the law. That's how, I mean, if you drove here, 
and you were late. You may have been, oh, the law, I can only go 40, and then it doesn't go till 50 till after the car wash, but I can see the sun. Why can't I go 50 now? Um, maybe I'm the only thought that, but, <laughs> but the, uh, the law, it's, it's, it's how could we look back at this and say, oh, I read Leviticus, and God opened my eyes to wondrous things in it. I was so encouraged as I read Leviticus. How could that happen? Well, I think it happens like this. Just because we're in Christ, who has fulfilled the law, does not mean that we can no longer behold wondrous things from it. A simple read through Leviticus will quickly reacquaint us with the timeless truth that God is holy and he expects his children to be holy and to be distinct. That's how it's wondrous to us even now after Christ. That's how it's wondrous to a bunch of people who are in the one who fulfills the law. We don't look back at it and say, thank God I don't have to do that again. We, we can look back and say, thank you God, wondrously that we don't have to do that anymore. But we see in that this call to holiness and being distinct and being pure and not coming before God in a flippant manner, not coming before God in an arrogant or an entitled manner. What we see is a God who says, be holy as I'm holy. Just a read through Leviticus is, man, he really, really cares about holiness. That's what it means for wondrous things to be opened up to us, to see what God really desires and to begin to desire it with him. That's sanctification. That's taking us in our common, maybe even unclean state and making us clean and even holy as he calls us to be a holy nation, a royal priesthood. We can see that he expects his children to be holy by living distinct lives, which comes to our memory verse, Leviticus 19.2. Don't forget it. You're called to be holy as I'm holy. I, your, the Lord your God, am holy, so you be holy. Our uncleanness can only be made clean through sanctification, and sanctification cannot happen without a lot of blood from atoning sacrifices, and for us, particularly the blood of Christ. So let's pray that God would continue to open our eyes to wondrous things from his law as we continue in our um, studies in the coming weeks. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we pray corporately, open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things from your law. Thank you for going to significant links to show us how holy you are and how distinct and how different you are from every other God who has ever been worshiped. Thank you for showing us what it means that the, the Holy One, the, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the one true God is a God who cares for his children, who is very present, available, and accessible through the atoning blood of Christ. Thank you for showing us that. I pray that we would continue to be encouraged as we read through Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and a lot of Old Testament texts that many of us may not be very familiar with. We love you, Lord, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.